The reading is Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 28. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be here properly. Um, and yes, uh, second service. So not quite as nervous as the first one. Have you ever seen 60-minute makeover? Rings a bell. Have you ever seen 60-minute makeover? Running, and I did check this on Wikipedia because I'm not that sad, maybe. Running from 2004 to 2018, there were 12 series of 60-minute makeover and 639 episodes. 639 episodes of 60-minute makeover. It really was daytime TV at its finest. It was up there with my top five daytime TV. Homes Under the Hammer, Bargain Hunt, Doctors, A Latecomer, Father Brown, and, of course, 60-minute makeover. For the last few series, it even had Peter Andre as its presenter. That is, you know, that's top-tier level daytime TV. But for those of you who've never seen 60-minute makeover, it really does do what it says on the tin. It's about someone having their rooms, or one of their rooms in their house, transformed in all of 60 minutes. Basically, there'd often be a heartwarming story that would go with it. So someone who'd had a tough time in their life, they would be persuaded to go out for 60 minutes to go to the shop, or to go to the park, or to go to a cafe or somewhere, whilst a friend or family member would let in a team of builders who would basically go to work on transforming one of the rooms of this person's house. And the work that they would do, the idea was, they would not only renovate that person's room, but they would bring new life to that home. And in bringing new life to that home, they would inject some hope and joy into the life of the person who owned the house, who lived there. This remarkable transformation of home and heart took just 60 minutes. But if you think 60 minutes is a fast turnaround, Matthew 16 manages it in about 60 seconds. One minute, Jesus is calling Peter blessed, as we saw last week. 
The next minute, further down the same page, five verses later, he's calling him Satan. What on earth is going on here? How can Peter go from being called the rock on which the church is built to a stumbling stone in five verses? In many ways, it's a bit like the opposite of 60-minute makeover. Someone persuades you to leave your house for a cup of coffee, and when you get back, they've demolished your conservatory. What on earth is going on here? What has changed from last week's passage to this week's? Well, first, we'll look at verses 21 to 23 to work out what's happened, to see what Jesus is getting at here, to, to understand why Matthew has so cleverly placed these two conversations immediately next to each other. We'll see the way the role of the Messiah talked about last week is going to be completely different from what Peter and the rest of the disciples were expecting. And in that, we'll see just how central Jesus' death on the cross is to his life and ministry, how the centrality and importance of the cross means that we can't really be Christ-centered without also being cross-centered. After this, we'll look at verses 24 to 28, in which we'll see how Jesus' message to his disciples, both then and to his disciples now, is to follow in his footsteps. That before glory comes suffering. That before life comes death. To be Christ-centered, then, is to be cross-centered. There was no crown of glory for Jesus before the cross. He was acutely aware of that. And the same goes for us. But firstly then, let's look at verses 21 to 23. In verse 21, we see Jesus continuing to concentrate his time and conversation just on his disciples, his close followers. He isn't talking to a big crowd anymore. The big reveal just happened last week, as we saw. The disciples now know that Jesus is no ordinary teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is, in fact, the Messiah the anointed one, as Tim said, the one come to bring life, to restore people to a right relationship with God. But he's told his disciples to keep this information under wraps. Why? Why keep it a secret? Well, one of the reasons is because Jesus knows that they don't yet understand what his being the Messiah actually really means. He knows that their idea of what a Messiah is going to do is very different from his, from God's. So in verse 21, we see Jesus explaining it to them. He must suffer many things at the hands of the authorities. He must be killed and then be raised to life again. Then what happens? Verse 22, Peter, the blessed one, The rock on who Jesus will build the church grabs Jesus, takes him to one side and says, never, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I think you can almost picture Peter kind of grabbing him and and shaking him almost in the shoulders and just saying, no way, it's not happening, Jesus. Don't, don't, Don't even say something like that. That's preposterous. It's outrageous. You're the Messiah. You can't die. I, I won't let it happen. Peter here, of course, he wants what he thinks is best for Jesus. He follows him. He respects him. He loves Jesus. What Peter has heard Jesus say is just, no, he can't accept it. It's beyond Peter's comprehension. See, Peter knows that Jesus is the anointed one. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah, the one come to save God's people. 
He knows, because he has seen with his own eyes, that Jesus has amazing power. He can perform mighty miracles. He has God's power. Who can withstand the power and the mighty works of the Lord God of hosts? No one. How can Jesus die when he has all that power? When he has come as the Messiah to rescue? Surely to die is to lose. Surely to die is to fail. Surely to die is to be conquered and defeated. Peter says, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the one sent by the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one sent by the person who made everything, heaven and earth and everything in it. You're the heir of the mighty King David. You, the prophecy says that you will crush Satan under your feet. Jesus, now, now you're telling me that you're going to die? No. Never, Lord. Never. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He doesn't say, Peter, you're right. There must be a better way. This, this doesn't seem to make sense. This doesn't seem to be right. And he doesn't even say, thank you, Peter. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness there. I can see that you love me, and I want to thank you for saying that. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you were blessed. You were a founding rock. How have you become a stumbling stone? How have you become like the greatest enemy of God and the worst persecutor of the human race, Satan? How have you fallen so far, so fast? 150 years ago, someone said of this moment, the error that drew from such a loving savior, such a stern rebuke to such a true disciple as Peter must have been a mighty error indeed. To oppose the walk of Jesus to suffering and death, however well-intentioned, was, Jesus says, to do the work of Satan. To tempt Jesus with anything other than the completion of his work, of his ministry on earth, was to do the work of Satan. To deny the necessity of the cross, the plan and concern of God, Jesus says, was to do the work of Satan. The error that drew from such a loving saviour such a stern rebuke to such a true disciple must have been a mighty error indeed. The death of Jesus on the cross for us, to take our sins on himself so that we can be right with God, is at the heart of Jesus' mission. Jesus says here that to be Christ-centered is to be cross-centered because no cross, no resurrection, no life, Peter thought life would come another way. He, he expected an earthly kingdom, worldly glory and power. But Jesus says the way to life is through his death. The only way to eternal life with God is through his death. Do you believe that? Do you have in mind the concerns of God or merely human concerns? No cross, no resurrection, no life. But Jesus has more to tell his disciples. He knows Peter's view isn't just Peter's view. It's representative of the rest of them too. And just as they are wrong about the ultimate role of Jesus, his role of suffering and death, in the same way, they need to know that their role is going to be very different from what they are expecting. 
The students must follow their master. The disciples must follow Jesus into a different role. They will have a crucial role, but it won't be the role that they expect. So let's look at verses 24 to 28 now and see what the way of the cross means, not just for Jesus, but for his disciples. Verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. The Son of God took on an earthly life that he might die so that he would take us up into new life with him. The Son of God took on that earthly life that he might die so that he would take us up into new life with him. That is the way of the cross. That is the path that disciples of Jesus too must take. Disciples of Jesus must be willing to die, to take up new life with him, to die, to to die to self, to die to pride, to die to selfishness, to die to riches, to die to fame, to die to friends and family, to die to power, to die, to die to the things of the world. Friends, God may ask you to die to all of those things or just some of them, but if we want to be disciples, we will have to, we will have to, to deny ourselves take up our cross, and follow Jesus. There's no way of following Jesus that gets around that. There's no way of following Jesus that gets around the cross. Peter tried it. We see it in our passage. Jesus called him Satan. The only way to save your life, Jesus says, is to lose it. And for Peter, from what we can tell, that meant literally picking up his cross, literally being crucified just like Jesus, just like his master, his saviour, In fact, every one of the 12 disciples, apart from one, was crucified. wasn't crucified, but died. They lost their life. They were martyred, killed, literally for telling people about Jesus, literally for following their master. Following Jesus isn't always easy. It's not always comfortable. But following Jesus is the way to find life. Those disciples went to death because they knew that. And so many of Jesus' disciples over the last 2,000 years, even to today, they knew that, they know that. They have lost their life. They are losing their life to follow Jesus. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, for you and for me, that that probably doesn't mean death. We aren't killed for, for our faith in this country, and we can be thankful for that but but for some missionaries for some believers in in lots of countries around the world death is just around the corner just for following Jesus those believers those missionaries they hold this truth so dearly that they know that this is the way they know that Jesus is the only way to life even if that means death and I know that some of us are already bearing heavy burdens due to the life circumstances that that are beyond our control Now, I don't want you in that situation to think now that that Jesus is calling you to bear more than you can bear. He knows how much you can bear, and he will only give you what you can. I know that our passage today can seem crushing if we're already facing suffering or stress. Jesus is your source of life and rest. Perhaps what you're already facing now, if, if you're going through that, that is your cross at the moment to bear. And if that is true, then I want to say, Jesus says, Let him be your source of life and your strength and your comfort as you walk through that suffering. And I also want to say thank you 
on behalf of Anna and their children and me, even though I've only been here a few weeks, I've already seen firsthand or, or heard about the wonderful ways in which so many of you are doing this right now. So many of you are picking up your cross and following Jesus, giving up your time or, or your money or, or your skills in so many ways. For example, to feed my family over this last week, to welcome us and, and offer support in so many ways. And I want to thank you for that. We're very grateful. When Jesus' people follow Jesus' example, when they pick up their cross, when they self-sacrificially serve others, that is a powerful witness to the love of God and to the, with what Jesus has done for us. So thank you. Thank you. In verse 26, Jesus presses his point further by contrasting the prize of eternal life with God and comparing that to the things of this world. What does he say in verse 26? What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, the whole world, everything in it? Think of Apple, of Amazon, of Microsoft. Think of governments that have trillions of pounds, trillions of dollars flowing through them. Think of the most powerful organizations in the world. Think of all of that. Put it all together, all of those things. What good would it be to gain all of that, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul. See, 60-minute makeover claimed to transform people's lives, to bring them joy and happiness through painted walls and new furniture. Jesus says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their souls? The way to true happiness, true life, true peace is not through a makeover of our homes, although that can be a good thing, but through a makeover of our hearts. If we realize that we are sinful, that if we realize we do bad things before God, if we realize that actually we need his forgiveness, if we're sorry for that, if we, if we want to have a right relationship with our Father, our Creator God, if we see that Jesus has died to take our sins and if we put our trust and hope in him out of love and out of gratitude for all that he has done for us, then we will be followers of him and we will be right with God our Father. Friends, why would you renovate your house when you haven't yet renovated your hearts? Your house has a value, but your eternal soul is priceless. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? House prices go up 10%, 20%, 30%. You might have one house, two houses, three houses. They're nothing, nothing in comparison to your soul. Your soul is priceless. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus, follow him, and you will have gained treasure more precious than every house in the world. Eternal life. What things are blocking you from walking with Jesus? Maybe there are things blocking you from coming to faith. Maybe there are things just blocking you from continuing your walk, of picking up your cross. Maybe you're perhaps you're afraid of mockery or, or disapproval from friends or family. If they knew that you'd become a Christian or if they knew that you were taking your faith actually seriously, you know, they might look down on you. Is that what's holding you back? Maybe you're, maybe you're just comfortable. You don't want to change your life because you feel that you've got things the way you like them. Sure, it's not perfect, but things are okay. Things are fine. Maybe you're afraid that walking the way of the cross means giving up dreams about your future, that the plans that you had maybe for, for retirement or for the career that you had. Or maybe it just you can't face having to change the way that you think about yourself and your identity and the way that you view the world and the way that you think the world views you and all of those sorts of things. 
But friends, in verse 27, Jesus says he is going to come in glory and he will judge or reward everyone. When that day comes, will Jesus say, I never knew you. You pick the concerns of the world over the concerns of God. You try to keep your life and so you have lost it. Or will he say to you, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. You followed in my footsteps. You took up your cross as I took up, now, as I took up mine. Now come and enter into my everlasting life. Let's pray and then we'll hear a song. Father God, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you for Jesus, for his, his birth, his life, his teaching, his death and his resurrection. Thank you that he picked up his cross so that we might have life. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to pick up ours, to be willing to trust in him and follow him, that we might have that everlasting life. When Jesus returns, may we be found in him as one of his disciples. And in his name we pray. Amen.